Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 103, released on January 30th, 2019. If you have not done so yet, subscribe to the podcast on your app of choice, including iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud, and don't miss the new episodes coming out at least weekly. Today we are going to talk about good news in the land of policies and regulations, about hot January for the Icelandic startup ecosystem, about the history of Life Journal, about performative workaholism, and uh, much, much more. We also have a pre-recorded interview with uh, Raf Kruan, the founder and CEO of the Startup Bootcamp IoT Accelerator in London. I am your host, Andre Degler, a tech journalist based in Amsterdam, joined today, as usual, by our research lead, Natalie Novik, located in sunny Edinburgh. Hi, Natalie. How is it going? Hi, Andre. It's going very well. How's it going for you? Yeah, it's great. We have finally got rid of snow here in Amsterdam, and I can uh, cycle around without being afraid of falling down every second. So doing really, really great. It's about those small things. Yeah, exactly. So uh, how was this uh, week uh, for the European startup ecosystem in terms of deals? Yeah, so we tracked a number of deals this week, and the biggest one goes to Confluent, which is an enterprise event streaming platform based in London and Palo Alto. So they've just closed a $125 million Series D funding round. Also, we tracked in Amsterdam, TomTom sold their telematics business to Bridgestone, the tire manufacturer, for 910 million euros. Oh, yeah, this one was actually pretty funny. So it's really interesting. And it turns out, uh, I think I mentioned it in the story that I wrote on it, that this is basically half of the whole uh, market cap of TomTom. So pretty much they sort of uh, halved their business in order to focus on uh, maps and navigation and location services and all this, uh, this kind of things. I, I do hope that I would at some point be able to uh, probably get there and uh, talk to one of the executives and see what the new focus of the uh, company is going to be. Right. And it has a very strong brand internationally as well. So it'll be interesting to see how uh, what direction the business takes after this new development. Right. So uh, let us move to the stories, uh, the other stories of uh, the past week. I will start with what I wanted to talk about. And uh, I wanted today quickly highlight two stories instead of one. They're sort of connected since they're both about uh, policy and regulations. And uh, in my opinion, they're both, uh, both rather positive, which doesn't really happen that often when you talk about uh, regulations in the European Union. So uh, the first one, uh, that's arguably the biggest story of last week in uh, European tech. Uh, the French uh, data protection regulator, abbreviated CNIL, has slapped Google with a fine of 50 million euros over its failure to comply with the general data protection regulation that's uh, more commonly known as a GDPR. In a nutshell, uh, the issue that CNIL had with Google is uh, uh, the way uh, the latter handles uh, user consent to the terms and condition on Android and uh, elsewhere in, uh, in its apps, but mostly on Android as far as understand. Uh, the thing is that uh, the way that some pop-ups appear and read, it makes the user think uh, that uh, without accepting the TNC, Google services will not be available at all, even though uh, 
uh, some other choices are often concealed in submenus or under these like more options uh, links, uh, the triple dot links and uh, the other sneaky tactics that uh, some companies uh, do employ. Uh, and of course, the fine itself, uh, 50 million euros, is pretty small. And of course, Google will appeal this decision to death, but the precedent looks actually quite uh, promising to me. Now, the second story is even more, even more interesting and even more positive, if you ask me. So you remember the copyright directive, uh, that uh, controversial set of rules that uh, has been drifting through uh, the European Parliament's approval procedures over the past few months. Well, uh, it seems like it's finally hitting a brick wall now, or at least that's how uh, the MP Julia Reda has uh, put it on her blog. In case you don't know Reda, she is uh, one of the most vocal opponents uh, of the regulation, and uh, she's been actively blogging and writing and uh, being an activist about uh, doing something with uh, the copyright directive as it is right now. So here's the latest on uh, what's been going on in the European Parliament. On January 18th, and that's almost two weeks ago, uh, the European European Parliament was supposed to vote to approve the final wording of the infamous Article 11 and 13 uh, before beginning the trilogues. And the trilogues are the consultations and discussions between the European Council, uh, the European Parliament and the member states. And in these trilogues, they would actually talk about uh, how to implement the copyright directive. And I can also remind that Article 11 Article 13 were the most controversial part of uh, the directive, and they were all about uh, uh, link tax, so-called link tax, which would have uh, aggregators pay uh, for uh, snippets of journalistic work. Like, for example, if you search on Google, uh, then uh, you would not be able to see the snippets of uh, articles unless Google paid for them. And Article 13 uh, makes aggregators and online platforms responsible for materials uploaded there. So, for example, uh, YouTube or smaller uh, platforms would have to employ sort of upload filters uh, straight away uh, to make sure that nothing uh, that violates the policies would be uploaded there. So, what happened on January 18th, though? In a last-minute change of heart, uh, a few countries decided to vote against uh, the way the articles are currently written, and that was totally unexpected. So, some of the countries were already going to vote against it. Uh, we knew that, and these are Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, Finland, and Slovenia. But uh, the ones that joined them are Italy, Poland, Sweden, Croatia, Luxembourg, and Portugal. This was pretty surprise for everyone, and of course, this vote does not mean yet that the copyright directive is dead or is not going to happen ever and so on. But what it does mean is that it's likely that it won't be adopted before the next European elections, which will take place in May. And this in turn means that after we have the new parliament, it's very likely to start the conversations over just because uh, the new MPs will go in the parliament and they will have their own ideas and they will have their own understanding of how the things have to be. So this creates a lot of additional time for the opposition to voice its concerns. And generally speaking, it seems like the probability of getting a copyright directive that actually works for the internet has become significantly higher. Natalie, what do you think of this uh, development now? I think what's interesting is kind of this surprising move where you had a number of countries that were totally against it, but a number have joined that. Um, I wonder what happened there, what, what really kind of tipped the tables. I don't think it happens that often, right? Everybody was pretty sure that we are going into trilogues and then it's, uh, then suddenly nothing happened. Yeah, and, and voting um, is pretty durable. And, and so I wonder, I wonder what 
actually encouraged this change of heart here. I just have to hope that they just read all the arguments against and decided that they want to do the right thing. I don't think that's what happened, but you can always hope. Okay, let's talk about hot uh, January uh, in Iceland this time. What uh, What is it about? Yeah, so this week I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the launch of a new venture studio called Iceland Venture Studio, which is a pre-seed and seed investment fund that is focused on Iceland, uh, based in Reykjavik. So speaking to VentureBeat, uh, Bala Kamokaran, the founder and CEO of this new fund, the Iceland Venture Studio, said the fund plans to raise $5 million to support Icelandic startups, and $1 million of this has already been raised. If the name Bala Kamakaran sounds familiar to you, he's the founder of Startup Iceland, which is a community organization that's been working really hard for a number of years to propel Icelandic startups. Startup Iceland was born out of the Icelandic financial crisis, which seems like a long time ago, but it wasn't that too far back. And today it's grown to become a platform to connect the local startup community. They're most well known for their yearly conference, which brings a number of international speakers to Iceland. Notably, Bala brought American investor Brad Feld to Reykjavik for the first Startup Iceland Summit, and he used Feld's Boulder thesis to inspire some of the initial startup community building in Iceland. Feld, of course, is most well known for his work with the Foundry Group and for co-founding Techstars, but also for his many best-selling books on entrepreneurship. What we see with the Iceland Venture Studio is another example of a startup community organization or event that is moving into the venture and investing space. So we see a number of examples of this in Europe already, where communities are built and then they kind of leverage this into investment. Most recently, we have the example of Web Summit, which announced the establishment of a 50 million venture capital fund before their event this fall. While it follows a clear pattern, something that was pioneered by pioneers in Vienna, who launched Pioneers Ventures a few years back. And there are a number of other funds that are connected to events and community organizations. But in terms of Iceland Venture Studio, they're looking to invest in companies working in algorithms, privacy, and data security, amongst a few other verticals. The new fund has been in the works for some time now, and they've been talking about it for quite a while, and today joins five other VC funds that are currently operating in Iceland. Well, some might complain that local VC activity in Iceland still remains small, Icelandic startups are really punching above their weight when it comes to outside investment. I, I wanted to bring up this point because when you're looking at the data on investment in Iceland, they're having a really hot winter, which is part of the reason why I wanted to discuss this new fund this week. Earlier this month, we learned that the identity verification startup Authentique raised a $5 million US dollar round, and the crypto fintech Monerium raised a $2 million seed round at the beginning of the month. But the biggest news of all in January, and something that we wrote about at tech.eu, was that the Icelandic-founded Oculus Pharma announced an extension to their Series B round, bringing that to a total of $36 million. This is a lot of money for a startup scene when you consider that the entire population of Iceland is just over 330,000 people. Unfortunately, though, the small scene can also lead Icelandic startups to have itchy feet, and on the announcement of Trip Creators' $8 million investment last fall, they ended up moving their operations to New York City. But developing a startup ecosystem takes a lot of time, and the increasing number of successes from Iceland point to a maturing community and one that's really inspiring for the next generation. 
Many attribute part of the success of Iceland's startup scene to Bala's work in helping connect and build the community there. So events and community organizations really do play a very strong role. So we look forward to hearing about new companies supported by Iceland Venture Studios. And if you want to check out Iceland's startup community for yourself, the Startup Iceland event takes place in Reykjavik in June. So that might be an event that you might want to check out. Have you been to Iceland, Natalie? Yes, I've been to Iceland a number of times, actually. First was there in 2010, kind of before it became it started the tourism boom. So tourism is the country's number one industry now, and it's quite a destination for a lot of people. But most recently, I was there about two years ago as a layover that kind of went wrong. So I haven't been back after spending eight and a half hours in the airport. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would definitely, I would definitely like to go in June, I guess, just to, to to check out the community, but also just go around. Sounds. Also, have you noticed that uh, all this idea of venture studios has just started popping up uh, more and more often over the past uh, over the past few months? Yes, there has been a number of of different examples, and I think maybe part of the reason for it is you see a lot of slippage between venture agency and venture studio venture agency yeah and tech stars what's that again so it's kind kind of the same same thing basically helping different sorts of clients or stakeholders develop startups dedicated to solving certain problems Techstars actually had a very big announcement i don't know if it was last week or the week previous where they announced their own kind of studio model after a lot of fanfare so I'm interested to see um, how that works out. I'm, I'm just wondering whether the Venture Studio is the new accelerator. I mean, I think that's a good question. And something that when you speak with people that work at accelerators, something that they keep mentioning to me is that the accelerator model is something that needs to have some, I don't want to say disruption, but it needs to develop somewhat because many of these came about at a time where a lot of the knowledge uh, in starting companies, high growth venture companies, didn't exist in an accessible way. And so they really played an important role in connecting people and educating different types of founders to access this information. And now you're finding more of a democratic access to a lot of the resources that accelerators have. So maybe that the studio is the next sort of development. But I don't think, despite the name, I don't think that this outfit is a studio in the sense of the, the terminology. I think it's just the name. It's just another investment fund. Oh, no, I'm pretty sure it is the studio because I also talked to, to Bala about it. And uh, as far as I understand, uh, they have a team of uh, people working in uh, different uh, aspects of uh, startup development. It's not that they aren't employed uh, by this fund, but uh, so they are a third party of sorts. And uh, what the studio uh, does in this case is that they suggest 
uh, the founders to work uh, together with uh, uh, some of these uh, third-party providers uh, to help with the uh, prototyping and all that. So the Iceland startup studios, they're going to be writing uh, checks between 20 and 50K, as far as I understand. And this is mostly for prototyping. So this is for this very early stage uh, when uh, uh, the startups will be helped uh, by those uh, third-party uh, third guys and girls. And uh, after that, there is also a possibility of getting another up to 100,000 euros investment from the same venture studio. So I think they are actually trying to employ the venture studio model. And what you said about uh, democratic access uh, to all these services, that's a nice way to put it. I don't really just put it that uh, there's just a shit ton of accelerators around the world. Uh, and I mean, I, I used to work for one. So, of course, I did some research. And uh, uh, back two, three years ago, there was already more than 1,000 uh, different programs going on in the world. And they're all they're all different. And uh, unless we're talking about uh, accelerators of like tier one or tier two, like the ones that we all know about, then everything else is just hit and miss. You never know what you're going to get uh, uh, for this equity you're giving up, if you're giving up any equity, of course. And you just, uh, uh, you never know what you're going to spend uh, uh, your uh, next uh, three to six uh, months of life on. So with this uh, number of acceleration programs, I think it does make sense for uh, some of them to start and uh, uh, try to stand out of the crowd, at least with this uh, kind of uh, venture studio model that's supposedly better at helping the founders to uh, get their uh, startups out of the ground. And speaking of accelerators, by the way, it is uh, time to get to uh, our interview of the day. And uh, this one is... Uh, recorded by uh, Natalie herself in uh, uh, London uh, with uh, Raf Kruan, the founder and CEO of Startup Bootcamp program in London. So uh, that's the IoT program. It's been on for uh, three years and they just had a great uh, uh, demo day happening. Let's listen to Natalie and Raf for the next few minutes and uh, we'll be back in a bit with events and uh, recommendations. <music> Today, I'm speaking with Raf Kuan, the CEO and founder of Startup Bootcamp IoT. I've just returned from their third demo day in London, where seven startups have just pitched their companies. Hi, Raf. How's it going? Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. Thank you. Excellent. Well, maybe to start, if you could tell us a little bit about Startup Bootcamp and this round of companies that have just pitched. Yeah, thanks. So I think indeed, you know, Startup Bootcamp is a global accelerator. We've been, you know, working for the last 10 years, helping north of 700 startups and founders around the world you know 70 percent of our companies are still active and you know one of the numbers that we're pretty proud about is that we have more than 30 percent of our companies that are female-led so it's a good start towards you know gender equality even though we're not there yet i think we're doing all right we're number four on the scale you know after you know our friends from techstars and yc for example um, you know, 23 programs around the world, 20 cities, six continents. We are still vertical at core. So we're looking at industries such as fintech, insurtech, digital health. Uh, you know, we launched a interesting programs in Qatar around sports tech recently. And, you know, specifically around my program, so the IoT program, which started three years ago, as you mentioned, uh, this is the third year that we're doing this. We're starting very consumer oriented, of course, you know, three to four years ago, IoT was all about, you know, devices and, and wearables and those things. And we very quickly migrated towards industrial IoT, you know, the scalability of it all. So looking at companies around uh, segments such as, you know, smart industry, smart energy, smart retail, smart agriculture, environment, factories, buildings, you name it. 
And this year has been a tremendous year indeed, because we have seven amazing companies that we helped and they just pitched indeed last week at the IMAX in front of you know, close to 400 participants. It was an amazing day. Now, to give you a bit more perspective, Startup Bootcamp IoT, 25 companies invested so far in the last three years. We touched about 4.5K, so 4,500 founders around the world because we, we browsed the world to find the good founders. You know, it's not just around the corner. So we care about, you know, meeting the right people and we travel a lot to do so. We actually visited more than 38 cities to do that. And, and over, over the course of those last three years, you know, we supported close to 60 to 70 funders. Uh, you know, if you look at the number of funders in each of the companies and engage those guys with close to 400 investors as well. So it's very exciting. This year, we supported seven companies, as I mentioned, around health, aviation, security, energy, sustainability, sports, and supply chain. Yeah, and what's really impressed on me about the companies that pitched is this point about really moving beyond wearables, moving beyond kind of looking at what sensor technology really can do and how it can affect, especially these established industries. Yes, correct. We've made that a point, to be honest. Um, last year, when I started our second year, one of my first ambition was to look at impactful companies. And, you know, impact is a is a term that's been loosely used in our industry for the last few years. But our core idea behind that was to leverage the power of those sensors and the power of IoT to impact those industries around the world and to, you know, making sure that we got to invest in companies that really move the needle. And it's an easier thing to see when it comes to health, which clearly, you know, initially touched the heart of people. But when you look at an industry such as smart industries and factories, it's not as sexy as it could be when it comes to, you know, a wearable. Having said that, you know, supply chain for that example, you know, we have a company this year, PinIoT, who manages, you know, asset tracking, and it's an extremely powerful tool for a very low cost. So, you know, scales very well. But if you look at it in the firm front, it's not exactly as sexy as something that attaches, you know, to the body and gives you your heartbeat, for example. And it is still a very important business. So, those are some examples of the companies that we looked at that we care about. Uh, sustainability is another example, which, you know, impacts the world entirely. And, you know, Vesta, uh, the company that we invested this year that looks after smart packaging, clearly, you know, how to reduce the use of plastic is something that is keen as well, you know, to be to be expanded. We all know that, you know, plastic is killing the planets. And so any, any solution out there that we can sort of support and help grow to reduce the use of plastic. I think it's it's not only noble, but it's something that we really should um, do more and more. Great. And and one of the, the highlights, I think, for everyone that was at the demo day was the discussion that you had with Jackson Fond of Relayer, one of the alumni of Startup Bootcamp program. Relayer is such a great European success story, I think, especially how it's moved from having this kind of consumer product moving very creatively into the insurance space. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I'd like to give a shout out to Jackson for, you know, agreeing to be with us on Demo Day. He, he's an amazing guy and and their story is incredible. But it's a dedication to the world of IoT since day one. They've been one of the earliest company that our Amsterdam program invested in uh, in 2013. You know, they, they were looking not not at consumer, as you were saying, there was always about the empowerment of IoT builders. So they were looking at, you know, trying to enable those guys that were creating IoT solution with, at the time, the very earliest uh, product they had called the Wunderbar was just one of their solution to help, you know, with a, with a development kit. Very quickly, though, in a similar fashion to us, they realized that the world of IoT is a lot more than just a the device themselves, but it's the service, the solution around it, and, and basically cloud-based 
SaaS businesses that leverage those sensors. And so they slowly migrated to more of a SaaS business, enterprise SaaS business, really, and, and clearly in a very successful way. You know, they got acquired, as you were just referring to, by Munich last year for $300 million, which, you know, is not a bad number. And it really speaks to the the support and really the launch pad that Startup Bootcamp can provide for these companies. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I, our motto has always been to be the best co-founders of those companies in a way. We we consider ourselves as ecosystem builders and we, we believe in the in the power of enabling, you know, ecosystem to grow. But it's also a combination of different things. It's connecting the dots to investors for sure, but to corporate partners, to customers, to mentors at the beginning of the program, which are really the, you know, the secret sauce of every one of our existing sort of uh, um, vertical programs. We onboard people that are from the same industry, speak the same language, understand what it takes to create those very specific companies and, and help them grow alongside the, you know, the, the market. So it is great to see some successes coming. Now, the classic, I'd say, early stage to growth to exit path is between five to seven years. And, and of course, since we've been on the market for eight to 10 years, we're going to start seeing more and more of those, really. We, we have to date, I think, close to 12 exit, if I'm not, I'm not wrong. Uh, and there's going to be a lot more, of course. Oh, that's excellent. And and really, that that's the, the secret sauce of a great accelerator program is to connect the dots between entrepreneurs, investors, the community, ecosystem builders that, that can really support those companies and enable them to grow. So outside Startup Bootcamp, you're a prominent speaker, advisor, and supporter of the IoT space. And so as we're here in January, towards the end of January now, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to it, it happening in the IoT space in 2019? What are some key trends that you think will be big this year? Yeah, very good question. I, I, I'm always on the lookout for the next trends because, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a keynote speaker and I'm delivering on average between 10 to 15 speeches a year. And of course, you need to renew yourself. And one of the key interesting topic is to sort of give forward looking statement, which you know tends to, on average, realize themselves about 20%, right? Not much more. But it's always interesting to see the evolution. Now, we're coming at the end of a cycle for the IoT world, I think. And, you know, I've been last year doing a, a keynote around, uh, and I'm going to be bold on my title, you know, from the Internet of Shit to the Real Life Changing Technologies was the title of my keynote. Very simply put, coming from that very early 1.0 IoT a world of devices that were making very little, if no impact whatsoever, and didn't serve any purpose. I mean, for Christ's sake, we had examples such as a connected ponytail or, or stupid sort of dark colors that didn't make any difference whatsoever, you know, and I'm not even talking about the Juicero of this world, which were a tremendously famous sort of failure. So we've gone out of that phase. And, you know, I think the market has grown into now, you know, leveraging IoT is not as buzzword anymore, but as something that's across the board a very powerful enabler to get more, again, sustainable, scalable solutions out there. And, and that's where obviously the consumer space, you know, grow into the industrial space, the enterprise space, the B2B space, really. So that's that's my, that was, you know, what we did last year. Now, across the board, what we've seen, though, is enabling technologies that are changing the game. Voice is one of them, for example, and hasn't picked up much, but I'm expecting this year to be big. Because, you know, when you think about environments such as high-risk environment in, in factory floors, where, you know, you don't really want to get your gloves out to take your smartphone or your tablet and type things. You just can't order the device to do what you want to do. There are very simple ways of doing it, right? So I think voice can be a big enabler. 
needless to say, we keep speaking about smart devices, right? And smart devices are are going to be even smarter when AI comes into play. And there's already a lot of machine learning from the get-go because machine learning is a technology that's been evolving over the years. Now we're getting into the AI space. And the AI space is a very interesting one for IoT particularly because you know, the more they learn those machines, the more uh, they get to be smarter and reacting in different sort of circumstances. And we're not getting into the Terminator space anytime soon, by the way. We're talking about small actuators and sensors to do very minion tasks, but it's still a very powerful one. Security also is a key trend that has been, you know, at the forefront of the concern of IoT space, mainly in the smart home element, right? We how many stories we've heard about, you know, spy cams and, you know, stories about, you know, your your devices taking control of your home and whatever, whatnot. Now, blockchain and decentralized ledgers are a key new asset to sort of indeed, you know, put a layer of security on top of every single IoT, smart IoT and, and B2B solution in particular. And so I'm expecting this year, 2019, to be a big year for blockchain enablement on IoT space. And last but not least, I think the key trend this year is the the edge and 5G emerging technology, which will help tremendously those devices to be faster with low latency access and so even faster access to control at the edge of the data. And, and if I'm speaking Chinese to our audience there, it's basically how to get you know better uh, source of data and compute it faster inside the device rather than having to do it in the cloud back and forth, basically. So... Yeah, new set of technology of enabling uh, those devices to be faster, smarter, and more secure, basically. Excellent. Yeah, and the 5G news is something that we've been following um, very keenly at tech.eu. Of course. As this is the third running of Startup Bootcamp IoT, can you tell us a little bit more about what's next for the program, for you specifically, anything that we should be looking out for on the horizon? (laughs) That's a key question, isn't it? I, I can't tell you anything just yet, and we, we are not ready to announce anything, but clearly, you know, we've, we've managed to create an amazing uh, legacy so far. I, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm very partial, but I, I hear good things about what we've done, and our alumni, you know, are very happy about what we've done with them. My ambition, and that's what I will leave at, is, you know, we want to be keeping on building the next phase of what we've done so far. Startup Bootcamp has always been about early stage, but also we started iterating our programs around the world in various different sort of segments, but also in different stages. We've done programs that are targeting later stage companies. We've done programs that are targeting corporates themselves, so the the last piece of the program. And we've even gone back to, you know, enabling young innovators to be trained on new ways of working. So we're basically trying to target the entire spectrum. And so what you can expect in the future is, is a combination of all the above with, in addition, I would say something that I'm very keen on is potentially getting more money involved and so potentially raising a fund around that space. I'm sure that the minute I've got more news to share, you'll be the first to know. Okay, Raf. And before we close, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, sure. I, I just want to finish by saying that, you know, if anyone listening to the podcast is interested in joining us, uh, supporting us or investing as well because of the fund structure, you know, in the future of industrial IoT, impactful technology, mobility, or even I'd say future of living, urban and food, then just give me a shout. You know, you can drop me an email at raf at startupbootcamp.org and, and I'm sure you guys will put that in notes as well. So be looking forward to get more in people to join our adventure. It's, it's an exciting few years ahead of us. So hopefully you join us. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for speaking with us today and all the best for the rest of the year. Thanks, Natalie. Looking forward to it. Speak soon. 
Hello, hello. Welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu, an episode number 103 released on January 30th, 2019. We have just discussed the Icelandic startups, the Venture Studio model. Uh, we just listened to a great interview with Raf Kruan. I hope you liked it. We talked about uh, Google's fine in France and copyright directive. And now it is time to move on to the future, rather the, the past, and uh, uh, talk about the events coming up within the next few weeks. Uh, uh, Natalie, what should we expect? Yeah, so looking ahead on the event calendar, things are beginning to heat up a little bit. And I'm looking forward to heading to Munich on February 7th for Pioneers Mobility, which is a really great one-day conference on the future of transport in all its forms. So I'm really looking forward to chairing a panel on electric mobility. So I'll be sure to get the lowdown for you, Andre, and for all of our listeners on electric scooters and their impact on our world. Please give my regards to all the founders of electric scooters startups. And uh, yeah, if you can just ask them not to come to Amsterdam for at least the foreseeable future, I would be very, very grateful. I think they might win you over. But also kicking off in Munich on February 7th is the Manusec Europe Conference, which is a two-day event that explores cybersecurity for critical manufacturing fields. And it's bringing together a number of top executives and senior IT professionals to discuss the challenges, critical issues, and best practices in preventing cyber attacks in the manufacturing industry. So if you'd like to attend, you can get a special discount from tech.eu with the offer code techeu25 at checkout. So if you want to get that code again, head over to our event section to find out more and how to order and attend the event. So if you're looking for more things to do this month, well, the month is nearly over, but looking to develop your calendar for the future, check out the event section on our website. And if you have a suggestion to add, let us know at the link in the show notes. Yeah, this manufacturing event uh, sounds pretty cool. I'm always uh, fascinated by the, by the large-scale machinery and uh, the tech uh, needs and uh, generally the tech that uh, they have to employ to keep it all going. And I imagine cybersecurity is a very important topic related to, to these machines. Yeah, cybersecurity is generally getting more and more important over time. I wish I learned more about it when I had a chance. Maybe time to start now. Well, anyway, let's uh, move on. Let's move on to the recommendation uh, part of the podcast, uh, the one uh, where we share uh, something that we have stumbled upon and we would really encourage our listeners to check out. So my recommendation of today is uh, a uh, an article on uh, Ars Technica that tells the story of LiveJournal. Uh, that's one of the first blogging platforms and I would say one of the first uh, social networks. And actually, I would even go on uh, to say that uh, LiveJournal was the social network done right and I really miss many features of it. Natalie, did you have a LiveJournal account uh, back in the day? No, I didn't. I had a MySpace, but not LiveJournal. <laughs> No, MySpace certainly was not the social network done right. But did you at least hear about LiveJournal? Definitely. And I remember seeing it on the web and I wonder what happened to it. 
Well, I mean, it is alive. Just uh, to, to give a little spoiler, so it is alive. You can go to livejournal.com. You can still get uh, your blog, but it has its servers uh, moved to Russia. So I'm not really sure you want to do uh, that. So uh, back to this story. It's uh, I think Natalie, you should also check it out uh, if you're interested in the history of the internet. Uh, so the story is called "The Linux of Social Media: How LiveJournal Pioneered Then Lost Blogging." And the story starts at the end of the 90s when Brad Fitzpatrick uh, discovered uh, CGI objects. Uh, that's a thing that allowed to send uh, sort of quick updates to web pages. What he first did with this uh, new discovery was uh, uh, something like a self-hosted version of Twitter for one person. So basically his own uh, uh, personal website, uh, he uh, got a way of uh, sending real quick updates. And the, the updates were exactly what you would expect from uh, a, a Twitter account, uh, like I'm bored or I'm going downstairs to get a Coke and stuff like that. Uh, but then uh, when he just uh, moved around... Uh, including a student campus, uh, he started distributing the script that he wrote uh, for these updates uh, among his friends. And in a couple of years, he basically ended up with a really popular uh, blogging service uh, that uh, was uh, loved by probably then thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. And uh, after, like at its peak, it was it was millions. So LiveJournal had a lot of problems, of course, uh, of its own, and that included pretty stubborn audience that didn't want anything changed at all. And then uh, it had the new owners uh, that bought the company off Fitzpatrick without understanding an awful lot about how it works and uh, how it should be going. Anyway, it's all in the story, so I definitely want you to read it. Uh, but what I also wanted to say a few words about is that the piece only briefly mentions uh, that in the mid-aughts, LiveJournal was crazy popular in the Russian-speaking segment of the internet. And I can certainly testify to that. It was huge. It was uh, it was really unbelievably huge. And uh, it indeed became the household name. If you at that point said uh, the word blog, you would most definitely mean a blog on LiveJournal. Uh, I, I joined LiveJournal myself around 2003 and I saw uh, pretty much saw it all. I still think that it was a great platform. And in a few years time uh, after 2003, I think most of the people I knew at the time uh, would have an account there. And you would just look people up on LiveJournal the way you do uh, on Facebook or LinkedIn now. You would just go uh, to their profiles, you would uh, check out what uh, these people are writing about, and uh, then LiveJournal also had a great uh, flexible uh, privacy settings, and it was really easy to control who can see your uh, stuff, uh, friends and group of friends, and just closed posts for yourself only, and then communities, open communities, closed communities, and stuff like that. It was it, it was great. I really I really miss it sometimes. But what I miss most, though, I think, is that unlike Facebook. LiveJournal actually did facilitate uh, discussions on the platform. I think its commenting system is superior to pretty much anything that's out there right now. It was a threaded system. It was really easy to read. It was totally intuitive, and uh, it was uh, it was just it it was really easy to understand what is being written to whom and what about. Uh, unlike Facebook, when you just get lost when a post gets maybe like fifty to sixty comments, uh, and unlike also unlike Facebook, by the way, uh, LiveJournal was searchable, so it was indexed by uh, search engines, and you you could just uh, go to uh, Google and uh, look for stuff on LiveJournal or uh, from certain user and. 
it would be possible to find stuff. Anyway, I don't want to make it a, a, a long old, old man's rant. I already did it last time with RSS, but uh, if you're interested in the history of the internet, uh, please go ahead and uh, read uh, this uh, great story on uh, Ars Technica. Natalie, uh, what is uh, your recommendation of the day? I, th I see it's more about young people than the old people, right? Well, maybe it's for a lot of us now. It's titled, Why Are Young People Pretending to Love Work? And it's from the New York Times. And it examines this phenomenon that the author describes as performative workaholism. So it's this idea about like hustle porn that we've talked about on the podcast before. So the author recounts some of the slogans that have become prevalent in modern society. And I mean, you'll really recognize these if you spent time um, in a co-working space lately, especially from WeWork's boastful, do what you love, which is emblazoned all over the pillows and the walls, their buildings, to hashtags that you see on Twitter, like, thank God it's Monday and hustle harder. First off, there's a lot of privilege embedded in statements like do what you love, because it's really not an option for a lot of people. But okay. Um, in the piece, the author describes this increasing trend of how we are beginning to document our work publicly for others, pointing out, for example, um, this great reference to LinkedIn's attempt to build its own version of Snapchat stories. Um, and many people in tech, especially entrepreneurs, freelancers, and those that are working remotely, work and personal life have really become one and the same. And so when you go on LinkedIn nowadays, of course, everyone, it's its hard to miss the videos that are taking over your feed and the minutia of people documenting all aspects of their work lives. LinkedIn has become in some ways this panopticon for your work life in the way that Facebook was for many in terms of your social life, this fear of missing out or the FOMO. And the author questions how productivity for some has taken on this spiritual dimension and some of the consequences of this. So it's a really interesting concept and I haven't really thought about it before, but she also engages with this societal dimension. What if you don't look like you're having fun at work or if you treat work as actually work? And what does it say about you and some of the consequences that it might have? So it was a really interesting story, very well written, and has led to a lot of compelling responses online. And part of the reason I bring it up is that many European countries have worked so hard to become leaders and things, advocating paid time off, shorter work weeks, and efforts that have sought to make work a part of your life, but not to let it take over your life. And I wonder if social movements such as this, as well as often the corporate motives sometimes that are behind them, will erode some of these efforts somewhat. Because if you have more time off, you have also more time for different types of documenting the work that you're doing. It's just an interesting question. I hadn't thought about it before. It's really funny that uh, I just actually started reading uh, this uh, this piece yesterday during lunch and uh, haven't finished it yet. Now I'm totally going to. It is an interesting thing. And I think one of the less maybe obvious uh, manifestations of this uh, performative workaholism and uh, uh, the whole hunger to document uh, your uh, work life, it can be seen in internal communication a lot. And uh, I have seen it uh, more than once and I've heard of it even more than that. Basically, you might, if you work in a relatively big organization, what you might see a lot is, for example, people posting photos working after hours, people posting photos uh, working over the weekends, uh, working at home and uh, making it an achievement and showing it, showing how great it is. And basically you just 
you don't feel great about uh, at the same time being at home or like uh, doing non-work stuff, knowing that somebody else is working their asses off. So this is also, I think, something that's not necessarily healthy in terms of uh, in terms of work life life balance. Anyway, I'm pretty much a flexible. Uh, kind of freelancer now so it doesn't really matter for me anymore but it's really interesting to watch from the sidelines and it reminds me of all these startups that started offering unlimited days off like if you get all your work done you can take as many days off that you want but it actually turned out that fewer people were taking time off at all uh, because it was kind of seen as well if you're going to take time off it means that you're not working and it didn't set particularly good practices in the workplace. So it's interesting. And I think everyone kind of notices how some of these practices start to creep into the work that we do. And it's just interesting to reflect on it. Yeah, it's a really interesting phenomenon with the with the unlimited days off. <clears throat> I wonder if there is an actual research, like an actual statistics uh, and more than anecdotal evidence of uh, what, uh, what it led up to. I'll try to find that for you. <laughs> cool. Please do. You always send me very, uh, very interesting things uh, on Twitter. I really appreciate it. Always some e-scooters, news and stuff like that. It's amazing. Anyway, we are a bit out of time. So I guess it's time to wrap up today's podcast. I do hope uh, uh, you all enjoyed it. Uh, do not miss our new episodes. Uh, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Spotify or SoundCloud. Just look for tech.eu podcast and you will find us. Please leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. If it allows it, uh, this will help others find it and will mean a lot for us. Tell everyone you know for whom it would be relevant about the podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU and on Facebook and on LinkedIn. Uh, please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andri at tech.eu and Natalie at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Uh, enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you next Wednesday. Thanks, Andri. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. <laughs>